Amen, indeed, and thank you to the music team for leading us in song this morning. And I would invite you, if you would, to pray with me as we begin. Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for the forgiveness which is found in Jesus Christ, even as we just sang. We do not need any other argument to enter within heaven's gates nor to enjoy fellowship with you this very day. And there is no other plea that we could give for mercy other than to plead on behalf of what your son has done through his death and resurrection on our behalf. And so we come today with that, with that argument and with that plea, knowing that in Christ all things are yes and amen. And so we pray this morning as we turn to study your son, to learn from him of who he is, that we would be again filled with gratitude and also, Lord, convicted that we might live a life that makes much of him in all aspects. And so we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I would invite you this morning, if you would, as we begin to take your copy of God's Word, and as is our tradition, would you stand with me for the reading of it? Our text this morning is John chapter 6, John chapter 6, verses 22 through 40, and we are going to read this morning, beginning in verse 35. So turn to John chapter 6, if you would, and begin with me in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. And now, an apology. Ben, I done messed up. That's the last you're going to hear of those verses this morning, because I didn't make it through the text. So, this morning, the passage I'm actually going to have time to talk about is 22 through 34. But I still wanted to read 35 to 40, because I do believe it sets the stage for what we're talking about. I don't know what that means for next week, but my apologies. <laughs> so... That's where we're at. If you're looking at your note sheets and you notice that time is coming to a close and we've only made it through the first major point, that's on purpose this service. It wasn't last service. But we are going to be talking about one thing that does span. And if you've got your note sheets this morning, I hope your kids got your kids' bulletins on the way in as well. Our title is Seeing Isn't Believing. Seeing isn't believing. You've probably heard that phrase many times, seeing is believing. Or as the kids on the internets like to say today, picks or it didn't happen. The idea that if we can see it with our eyes, if we can experience in some way, well then that's the way things are. And yet I believe as a culture we're coming to grips with the fact that 
Just because we're all seeing something doesn't necessarily mean we really understand what we're seeing or really believe what we're seeing. If we look around our country, people are looking at statues, they're looking at monuments, they're looking at flags, and though they may all be seeing the same thing, there seems to be wildly different understandings of the significance and meaning of those symbols. And what can happen in our culture in something like a statue can also happen in our faith when we look at Jesus Christ. And Jesus is going to confront that very problem in those that were following him around in the ancient world. And I hope in so doing he will confront us this morning, those of us here today that would claim to follow Jesus still. For your kids this morning, I want to ask you to consider a question and maybe if uh, you can write, start putting this in your notes. And that question is this. I follow Jesus because... How would you end the sentence? I follow Jesus because... How would that end? And for the adults in the room, it wouldn't be a bad idea, even in our own minds, to ask that question. If you're here this morning, you're dragged involuntarily, in which case, I hope it becomes voluntary at some point, or... You're here because you were interested or invited by somebody who said, hey, come check out church, in which case we're glad you're here and really happy that you can be part of our fellowship this morning. But for most of you, you've come today because you said in some fashion, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, and I want to be a part of the people of God, and I want to gather as a church because he is the one that defines my life. And I think it's good for us to always stop from time to time and say, but why? Why do I follow Jesus Christ? Jesus was followed by, by many people while he was here on earth. And he was followed for many reasons. Some were the right reasons. Some were the wrong reasons. And Jesus is in the middle in this chapter of thinning the crowd. By pointing out their motives. By presenting people with simple but difficult choices to make. In fact, the end of this long chapter will culminate in one of the most accurate and beautiful celebrations of true faith uttered by any of Jesus' followers, immediately followed in the next verse by a prophecy about his betrayal. Those are the camps that Jesus is pushing his audience into and this morning, I want to make sure we end up on the right side of that divide. Jesus is about to have yet another round with this group that's been chasing him for the wrong reasons. And he's going to be addressing some familiar topics that we've seen. But I think there are some new insights that we would do well to pay attention to. Because as we're going to see, seeing isn't always believing. And seeing is not enough. And so in verses 22 to 35, which will be the entirety of our discussion this morning... We are going to be looking at the trouble with seeing and seeking. The trouble with a follower of Jesus who was there just because of what he sees and because of what he seeks when what he seeks and what he sees are not what Jesus himself is offering. And we begin in verse 22 by seeing the first trap that we can fall into. And we'll look at three of them this morning. The first trap that we can fall into in following Jesus but missing him is to be too satisfied, to in fact be too satisfied. Look with me in John chapter 6, beginning in verse 22. 
The next day, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. There came from, or excuse me, there came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So you've got uh, some people moving around, and there's a little bit of humor, I think, rolled in here, and um, it's always fun to appreciate that. I imagine John chuckling a little bit as he's recording the progress of these crowds. If you recall the scene, Jesus had been ministering on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. He was preaching in all those major cities there, and then he decided, I want to get away by myself with my disciples for some private time of teaching, and so they all got into a little boat, and they went over to the east side of the Sea of Galilee to land there by themselves. Well, the crowd heard, Jesus is over yonder. And they didn't have a bunch of boats on hand, so they all hoofed it up around the Sea of Galilee, collecting a crowd along the way, caught up with Jesus and his disciples in the middle of their private get-together, and crashed the party. And so then Jesus, having a heart of compassion, spends all day teaching them, and then performs a great miracle for them there in the evening by feeding them all to the point where they were completely full. And then as the evening closes out, two things happen. One, Jesus goes off by himself, and the crowd saw that Jesus went off by himself. And two, the disciples got into what they were very keenly aware of was the only boat on the shore and headed across the lake the other direction. So Jesus is out in the wilderness somewhere. The disciples are across the lake. That means Jesus is still with us on this side of the lake, right? Well, the next morning, they wake up, and Jesus is gone. And they're very confused. Well, we know his disciples left. We know there's no more boats. So where's Jesus? He couldn't have gotten past us and around the lake without one of us noticing what's going on here. And then you have this wonderful collision here of capitalism and rumor. So the rumor goes out, Jesus is back on the other side of the lake. And all these boats in Tiberias say, there's an amazing business opportunity here. There's a whole bunch of people stranded on the far side of the lake. So they all set out with their small boats to meet all these people on the other side of the lake. And they all load up into these small boats. But instead of saying, take us back to Tiberias, which is where the boats were from, they say, take us to Capernaum, because we think that might be where Jesus is. And so the crowd that had chased him all the way around the lake this way is now chasing him all the way around the lake the other way to catch up which is just kind of funny. Verse 25, they find him. And they ask him that most pressing question anybody who had just experienced all the miracles and teachings of Jesus from the pre previous day should be asking. They found him on the other side of the sea, and they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And I really wish I could have seen the expression on Jesus' face, or at least his disciples, when they asked that question. God, imagine the disciples were kind of like, <laughs> because as, as the Jews had looked at their maps, they said, there, there's no overwater walking path on our map between this side of the sea and that side of the sea that they could have predicted Jesus would have taken in the night, even though that's in fact what he did. So, wrong question. Wrong question. And Jesus knows it's the wrong question. 
And he knows that if he answers that wrong question, it's going to lead to another wrong question and to another wrong assumption. And so he just cuts this whole conversation off right at the pass and redirects it immediately. Because it's not about when Jesus had arrived that's important. Jesus knows what's important right now is why the crowds have arrived. It's not how did I get here, it's what are you doing here? And so in verse 26, watch how he immediately turns the conversation. Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. This is a familiar theme, but it's one too important not to address. And Jesus isn't asking them a question. Hey, what are you guys really doing here? He's telling them. He's telling them what's going on in their hearts. Jesus could have been excited. I'm sure his disciples at some level were excited because, man, was he popular, right? He had been teaching there on the west side of Galilee, and crowds were coming to hear him speak. He tries to sneak away for a private getaway with his disciples, and crowds are willing to walk all around the lake to hear him speak. He walks across water in the middle of the night to go to the other side of the lake, and guess what? The next morning, the crowd's back wanting Jesus again. This is great. But Jesus isn't impressed by the size of the crowd. We often are, aren't we? Hey, everybody thinks I'm cool. I must be amazing. Or this thing's really popular. It must be pretty impressive. But Jesus looks at the crowd, and he doesn't see the size of the crowd as being what's significant. He sees the reason that the crowd is assembled as being important. What should have attracted this crowd to Jesus? Well, he tells us, the signs. They should have seen all these miracles, healings that he had been doing, the feeding, and said, there's a massive billboard here pointing and affirming the Messiah. But instead, they're excited about the billboard. They're excited about the sign itself. And Jesus even puts a finer point on it when he says, you know why you're really here? It's not even just because you were amazed by the signs. You're here because you really enjoyed dinner last night. Because you ate until the point you were full. The Savior of the world was standing in front of them, and all they could see was the potential for unlimited Lunchables. Jesus doesn't wait for a reply to his diagnosis of their heart. What reply could you give? And he moves now in verse 27 from diagnosing their heart to prescribing a cure. Do not, he says in verse 27, work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father, God, has set his seal. What's the solution to a heart seeking nothing more than good food? And notice Jesus didn't tell them they were wrong for enjoying the meal. Right, that, that can be an area where we sometimes get off track. Those of you last night who had a nice 4th of July barbecue with your up to five extra household members that you're allowed to assemble with, 
sitting out in the beautiful evening weather, watching fireworks of questionable legality. Jesus doesn't want you to wake up this morning and say, oh, I just feel so guilty because I had so much fun last night and I probably should have been fasting in my room and praying for spiritual food instead. Man, I will make a point this week to be miserable whenever possible to make up for it. That's not what he's talking about. He's not criticizing them enjoying as much food as they could handle because he had served it to them and he was in charge of portion control. And he made as much food as they could be filled with and more besides. That's not the problem. The problem, he is saying, is that all of the energy that you're exerting right now is only to get more bread. All of the work that you're doing, chasing me all around the lake, is only so that you can get free meals. Your energy should have been spent and said on realizing that behind that loaf of bread is the offer of living bread, of a bread that endures to eternal life that's being offered for you and you don't even have any appetite left over for it. You're so quickly satisfied by the little things, by the signposts. To use an analogy, we used a couple of weeks ago. It's like driving until you get to the first Disneyland sign and saying, yay, we made it, and then going home. Jesus is saying, there is a truer, better, deeper spiritual reality behind this offer of bread that you can't see. And it's a familiar, familiar lecture, isn't it? Kids, remember us talking about the woman at the well? Remember that story where Jesus meets this woman at the well and says, I'd like a drink of water. And she says, why are you talking to me? And he says, if you knew who you were talking to, you'd be asking me for a drink of water because I would give you living waters. And she can't get out of her head that he's talking about a cup of actual physical water and he has to keep talking to her and keep talking to her to try to get her to understand, no, I'm talking about a spiritual reality so much greater, so much more satisfying than something you can get out of a clay jar you drop out of a hole in the ground. And then right after that, his disciples show up and they say, Jesus, why are you talking to... That's weird. Anyway, are you hungry? And he says, I already have food that you don't know about. And they're like, did you give him like some falafel? Like, what, what's going on here? And he has to explain to them, no, that's not... I'm talking about real food. And they can't get out of their mind that he's talking about lunch. And he has to say, no, I'm talking about a spiritual reality. My food is to do the will of my father. And now he's having the exact same conversation with this crowd. They can't get out of their, their heads. They think, I want food, I want food, I want food. And so no matter what Jesus says, they're just thinking, I want food. This is going to be a food that doesn't come from some earthly source. And Jesus is trying to lead them to understand what kind of an eternal reality he's talking about by pointing them to where this comes from. Do you see that? I'm, I want to give you food which endures to eternal life. Who's it gonna, who, you know, how are we going to get this? I'm going to give it to you. The Son of Man is going to give it to you. Well, how does the Son of Man have access to something that is eternal? 
Well, by going to where all eternal things come from. Like if you want something eternal, you can't get it from here, because this is the place that wasn't, and then was, and currently is, and then everything dies. Right? This is not the eternal place, this, this planet that we live on, this creation in which we inhabit. If you want an eternal thing, you need to go to the one who always was, who is, and who always will be. That's where you get eternal stuff. And Jesus says, God the Father has set his seal on me. I have been given certification by the eternal one. His power, his authority, his approval, and his provision all back my ability to give you eternal food. And so when we come to Jesus, he's offering something pretty special. But when we come to Jesus, is that what we're looking for? And my lesson for us from this section is simply this. What do you want from Jesus? What do you want from Jesus? What, what hunger do you bring when you come to him that you're hoping he will satisfy? What, what desires in your heart are pressing upon you when you approach your Savior that you are hoping that he will fulfill? What problem are you dealing with right now in your life where when you come to Jesus, you're saying, Jesus, I'm following you because I want you to fix this problem. And those may be all important issues going on in your life, but if you zoom out from the perspective of mankind as a being created in the image of God who because of his fallen sinfulness is on the verge of spending an eternity in hell apart from the Creator, what do you want from Jesus? Better work environment? And then I'm fine? Kids that will listen, and then I'm good. Are you hungry for more? I'm afraid sometimes in the small kindnesses of God, we manage to ruin our spiritual appetite. Have you kids ever had your parents tell you, like five minutes before dinner's going to go on the dinner table, and you're like, Mommy, can I eat this bag of candy? And your mom says, no, because it will ruin your appetite, spoil your appetite. It's not because she wants you to go hungry, but because she wants you to eat that which will actually be satisfying. And sometimes in life, we are way too satisfied with a bag of candy. It is at this point, though I initially resisted it, I gave in, and I will in fact read that famous quote from C.S. Lewis that has to be read at all such occasions. It was just too good. C.S. Lewis writes, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. 
And I think that's true. And here's the thing. Sometimes God takes your candy away. Amen? Sometimes God takes your candy away. And it can be little things. My favorite show on TV got canceled. What am I going to do with my evenings? The golf course upped its price. I can't afford to go anymore. What am I going to do with myself? It can be little things. And our hearts are so prone to react with frustration at God. God, why'd you take my candy away? I really liked that candy. And Jesus is reminding us, I didn't take your candy away because I want you to starve. But because dinner's ready. I don't want you to go hungry. I want you to stop ruining your appetite on candy so you can come feast on living bread. Sometimes we see Jesus, but we stop short of true believing faith because we simply are too easily satisfied with trivial things and never realize what really matters and should be occupying our thoughts. Which doesn't make candy bad. But it means don't forget about dinner. But it can go beyond that because there are times when we are aware that there is a bigger need than simple earthly trivial things. But we can move right from one trap and fall into another. And Jesus is going to move on now to confront another problem in their hearts that's revealed by their response. And so in addition to being too easily satisfied, sometimes we see Jesus but miss him because we are too proud. Too proud to understand who we are in light of who he is. Look with me at verse 28. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. Notice they don't say, Wow, tell me more about this eternal food. What is it? Why would you give it away? They simply say, Oh, that sounds cool. I think he's still talking about food. So, uh, what do I got to do? What do I got to do to earn it? How do I get it? And by asking about the gracious eternal gifts of God, asking how you can get it, proves you don't get it. You don't get it. It's a question that reflects that, especially for the Jewish people, but also for us today, so often they had a conception of their relationship with God that was law-based. I do stuff, God does stuff. It's a great arrangement because I'm amazing. There's a couple of very flawed premises in that way of thinking about their relationship with God. It assumes that there's anything that we could do to gain the offer of eternal life from God, to gain approval with God. And it's not a question that Jesus encounters for the first time here or only here. In, Luke, God, in Luke's gospel, we read in Luke chapter 10, and a lawyer stood up and put him to the test saying... Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Luke chapter 18, that tall, dark, handsome, I mean rich, young ruler. It's kind of the same thing in that culture. Question him saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? 
It's always going to be tempting to think that we can do something to gain approval or the blessings of God. And as we're about to see, Jesus is not asking us to be passive in our relationship to God. In fact, this passage is a, makes me a little nervous just preaching it because he calls belief a work. But he is going to say, it is your belief and not what you do that is the only thing you can bring to this equation. Jesus tells them very bluntly here, if you want to do the works of God, if you want to spend your energy, like he had said, don't work for food that rots, but work for eternal food. If you want to exert your energies in life, exert them in this way, chasing me to know me and to believe me. You're chasing lunch. You need to chase the Lord. That's it. That's the work of God. It is a work of belief, a work of faith. And this is somewhat unique to the way that John talks about our relationship with God because we've spoken often of faith, but interestingly enough, the actual noun form of the word faith doesn't appear in John's gospel. He always talks about belief, but he doesn't want us to fall into the trap of thinking belief is just like, oh yeah, I guess I know that's true, and I guess I know that's true. And so he is constantly linking belief, like James does, to the activity of our commitment and our obedience, the ongoing state of abiding in Christ. Believing is not an event that we check off. It's a matter of the heart and the mind that we live in, and it requires the humility to realize there isn't anything I can do to earn God's favor. I must believe committing myself to the one who will have to do it for me. But we like to think we've got it figured out. You see this in, in children. Sometimes we see this around our home. Cover your ears. No. Uh, hey, that thing about quantum physics, and I know. No, you don't know. I don't know, so you don't know. Or hey, I need to, you know, go lift this two hundred pounds something other. I'll help. No, it's something, something Papa needs to do. I can do it. No, you want to do it, but that's different than being able to do it. My dad's probably smirking because he was there when I was young. Well, he's, my mom's smirking. This is how we are, and we can be that way with God. God says, I want to give to you eternal life, and we're like, sweet, I can help. And he says, no, no, you really can't. You need to just believe that I will. I know. No, you really don't. You need to listen to what I'm trying to tell you because this is really important. There's a folly in pursuing physical appetites over spiritual appetites. There's a folly in allowing pride to convince us that we can solve our own problem of sin. But there still remains for us a third trap that we can fall into this morning. And it's a classic trap. It not only can wreck our relationship with God, but it will wreck your relationship with your spouses. It will wreck your relationship with your bosses, with your coworkers, with your friends. And that is assumptions and false expectations. 
specifically when we get so fixated on how we think Jesus is supposed to be that we can't actually see who he is. And so through this morning, too fixated in verses 30 to 33. Verse 30 says this, So they said to him, Gotcha. Gotcha. Because they're listening, they're going, uh-huh, can we have some food? Jesus says, no, it's wrong, wrong question. Okay, can we have some food now? No, you need to spend your energy looking for eternal food. Okay, so what do we got to do so we can do that thing you're talking about so we can get some food? Jesus says, no, you need to believe in me. And they're like, perfect. Why should we believe you? What, uh, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and, and believe you? What uh, work do you perform? And they don't just uh, you know, leave it there. And notice they're being sarcastic because he just told them to work for the eternal food and now they're telling him to work for them. In verse 31, though, they, they go on to tell him exactly, exactly what kind of work they will accept from Jesus so that they will then be so kind as to believe and follow him. In verse 31, our fathers, uh, I don't know, ate manna in the wilderness. As it's written, now they're going to get biblical, right? Now they're going to quote verses to Jesus. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. The great sign that they are asking their Messiah to perform to clinch their faith is not just a meal. They want him to promise a permanent supply of food that like God fed the Israelites through the wilderness with daily manna, their perfect work. You keep providing the free food, we'll keep believing in you, Jesus. This can be a great working relationship. Most likely they're trying to quote Psalm 78, 24 here. He rained down manna upon them to eat, and he gave them food from heaven. But when they quote this verse, they make a massive mistake in their interpretation. This is bad exegesis. But it was a, a mistake that we might be more sympathetic with when we understand how this was actually taught to the Jewish people at this time. See, the people of Israel looked back and almost idolized Moses as the redeemer of Israel who had led them forth from Egypt and had provided for them in the wilderness. And they looked forward to the day when the prophet, like Moses, and if you'll recall, they had just called Jesus the prophet on the other side of the lake, when the prophet, like Moses, would come back to resume Moses' ministry to them. And so the rabbis taught, as it was stated in Omishnah at the time, as the former redeemer, Moses, caused manna to descend... As it is stated, behold, I will cause to rain bread from heaven for you. So will the latter redeemer cause manna to descend. And here's their proof text. As it is stated, may he be as a rich cornfield in the land. Psalm 72, 16. When they thought of the coming Messiah, they were saying, he's going to be just like Moses. And just like Moses fed us every day, when that Messiah shows up, he's going to fix all of our political problems, he's going to conquer all enemies, and he's going to give us free food forever. Does that sound like a party platform? You could run on that. Free food forever. Because cornfield, 
Here's the thing, though. They completely missed a very key detail in the story of the manna, and Jesus straightens them out immediately. Look at verse 32. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it wasn't Moses. It is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. Moses didn't wake up in the morning and say, Behold, people, your Redeemer. Watch this. Let there be manna. No, Moses woke up in the morning. He took his little pan. He went outside and said, God, would you feed me too today? It was God. It has always been God who is the source of all gracious good things. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father. And Jesus says, it was the Father who gave you temporary food in the wilderness to sustain your lives there. And it is the Father, my Father, who today gives you the true bread out of heaven. You want free food from a man? You never had free food from a man. You had free food from God. And today, he's going to show you that the manna you got in the wilderness was a taste of something much better that is standing right in front of you. Verse 33, For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus is zeroing in that this bread is not some product of works that you can do. It's not some product of what a man can provide. It is the product of you working out your belief in the God who provides from heaven what you cannot get from earth. And he says this bread is not a bread that simply fills your tummies, which is why you're here today. This is a bread which in fact gives life and not just to you Jews. You want a new Moses to come back and pat you on the head and make you feel special. Oh, we're Jews, so God takes care of us and all those Gentiles don't matter. No, this is a bread that is coming to give life to the world. We find out later in this chapter that during this entire conversation, Jesus has led the crowds from wherever they first ran into him there on the shores of Capernaum to the synagogue. And he's now been teaching them from the synagogue. And there's, I think, a really neat picture here because this synagogue has a unique story. First, it looks kind of cool because it was built of black basalt rock and it's right there on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And so it had just been this really striking building. But secondly, this was not a synagogue built by Jews. We find out from Luke chapter 7, I believe it is. Yeah, Luke chapter 7, this synagogue was built by a Roman centurion. A Roman centurion who later would come to Jesus because he had a beloved slave that was on the verge of death and said, would you heal my slave? And he has a conversation with Christ, a conversation in which this centurion demonstrated such a consistent belief in Jesus that Jesus said, I haven't found faith like this anywhere in Israel. The most faithful man Jesus encountered in all the land was not a Jew. It was a Gentile Roman centurion. 
and he's teaching about the bread of life going to the world, sitting in the synagogue that that guy built. That's kind of cool. That's kind of cool. The Jews had such strong expectations for what the Messiah would do that they completely missed the fact of what the Messiah was actually doing right in front of them. Who he was. They thought the Messiah would just come to overthrow the Romans and Jesus came to offer salvation to the Romans. They thought the Messiah would give them free food forever and they were right. They just couldn't understand what kind of food he was talking about. And so the lesson for us is this. What expectations blind us? What expectations blind us? When you come to Scripture, what have you decided that my Jesus would do or my Jesus wouldn't do such that when you hit a verse in the Bible that does not line up with what my Jesus would do, you say, well, then I need to have a creative interpretation of this verse. Or do we come to Scripture and say, Jesus, would you tell me what I need to think about you? And that might contradict what some well-meaning but wrong Sunday school teacher told me when I was four, and I've believed my whole life, but I'd rather repent of that error today and know you as you are than live one more day with a false notion of the Messiah. What expectations blind us? We have to come always with tremendous humility when we encounter God revealing himself and say there's a good chance I'm going to not see what he wants me to see unless I slow down and pay attention. Because whether it's a full tummy that masks an empty soul, a confidence in our ability that profoundly defies our actual helplessness, or expectations of how Jesus should be that keeps us from looking closer at who Jesus really is, there are so many ways we can fall victim and be a clueless crowd around Jesus, seeing him but missing him at the same time. And let me just tease where we're going to go next time because Jesus is about to move to say, let me spell this out for you. Let me tell you how this works. And your second major point this morning, if you just want to fill in the blanks and prepare for what we'll talk about in the future, it's the truth of beholding and believing. The truth of beholding and believing. So you look at verse 36. Jesus tells this crowd, I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. You've seen me, but you don't get it. And in verse 40, he says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. There is so much rich truth in this passage. I can't wait to unpack. Um, and by I, I mean probably Ben. I may not get to preach for a while. I only got halfway through my sermon. But to unpack in this section, but I want to just for us by way of application end on this note. You cannot see Jesus if you are unwilling to behold him. 
And that word behold means to gaze long on something for the purpose of understanding. And we live in such a hectic, crazy Western American culture setting that sometimes Jesus needs to call out to us and just say, chill out and look at me. You ever had to do that with somebody who was kind of working themselves up into hysterics? Stop. Look at me. Listen to what I'm saying. I love you. If we are going to believe in the Jesus who is, we must behold him as he has revealed himself. So take some time this week to slow down. Read the Gospel of John, front to back. And just say, who are you, Jesus? Who really are you? Because I want to believe in you. Perhaps for the first time ever. Or perhaps to renew not just your mental ascent. Yeah, I'm a Christian. I believe the Bible. But to renew yourself to a state of daily abiding, believing, and obeying the Jesus you say you follow. And so as the music team comes up this morning, we're about to hear and then sing a very simple song called the Gospel Song. As we prepare for the Lord's table, would we listen to that? Would we sing that as a reflection to behold for a minute the work of our Savior and what he has done for us? And then we will partake together after the song.